1: And as I've shared with you in the past, in addition to my JD, I hold a couple of master's degrees in law. That is to say, I am both a master of the law of taxation law and a master of the laws of intellectual property laws. And I have spent the greater part of the last nearly 40 years on this planet fighting for the economic empowerment Of everybody, but especially women, people of color, seniors, and veterans. Now, because of my training, my experiences, and my lifelong interests in business, and money, and finance, and wealth creation, and wealth preservation, and wealth transfer, and the roles that these particular aspects of the social science of economics play in the lives of everyday people like you and me, I primarily practice bankruptcy law. But I also practice its first cousin's debt, wealth management, estates and trusts, real estate, and as I like to say, their sometimes wayward offspring, taxation law. And I'm proud to say that as part of my practice, I also sometimes have the opportunity to seek out and at least attempt to vindicate the rights of seniors who find themselves the targets of some of the more pernicious forms of financial elder abuse that you can imagine that's running rampant in our society today. So I'm coming to you again today to discuss some of the financial and economic and legal issues confronting individuals, families, and small business owners. However, I must again ask you to please note that this show does not provide any legal advice, nor am I developing an attorney-client relationship with anyone within the sound of my voice Instead, this show strives strictly to serve as an educational forum for the exchange of information from me to you that might be helpful to you as you begin your search for more detailed information that's tailored to your specific set of facts and circumstances and hopefully provide you with at least a general outline of some of the key issues that may help you seek out and find qualified professional help that I think you need to reach out and find if you have a legal issue that intersects with your finances. So this week, I was having a terrible time deciding what topic to discuss with you all today, as there is a plethora of legal issues that intersect with our economy right now, including President Biden's decision this past Tuesday, August 3rd, to have the CDC reinstitute a narrower, more focused, more targeted version of the nationwide moratorium on eviction in the wake of the recent Supreme Court decision in the case called Alabama Association of Realtors at Al versus the United States Department of Health and Human Services at Al, that's currently pending in the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, and that's case number. 20-CV-3377. Now, that case is presided over by District Court Judge Dabney L. Friedrichs, who ruled that the CDC, that is a subunit of the Department of Health and Human Services, she ruled that the CDC lacked the constitutional or statutory authority to implement a nationwide eviction moratorium. But she put her own ruling on hold to give the executive branch the opportunity to appeal her decision to the DC Circuit. However, in response to the realtor's appeal of the stay portion, not the overall ruling, but the stay portion of Judge Frieger's ruling, first to the DC Circuit, and when they lost there, then on to the United States Supreme Court with the goal of having the stay of Judge Friedrich's ruling lifted immediately so evictions could recommence immediately. Now, however and notwithstanding his substantive agreement with the four conservative justices, Justice Kavanaugh, who wrote a one-page decision dated June 29, 2021, stated, and I quote, because the CDC plans to end the moratorium in only a few weeks on July 31st, and because those few weeks will allow for additional and more orderly distribution of the congressionally appropriated rental assistance fund, I vote at this time to deny the application to vacate the district court stay of the order, end quote. And he cited A couple of Supreme Court cases that stand for the proposition that whether or not to allow a stay to remain in full force and effect depends in part on balancing the equities for and against the stay relief requested by one of the parties here, the plaintiffs. So where things stand as of Friday afternoon, August the 6th, 2021, Today, when I record this show, on August 4th, 2021, the realtor group went back into Judge Friedrich's court, asking her to quash the new moratoria as being a mere pretext and basically the same moratoria that the court, her court, had already ruled as unconstitutional. Now, shortly thereafter, Judge Friedrich gave the government until this morning, Friday morning, August the 6th, 2021, to file its response. It did do so, and it asked the court to enter an administrative stay, stating that, and I quote, any injury to plaintiffs caused by a temporary administrative stay is outweighed by the risk of illness and mortality if the moratorium targeting areas of high or substantial transmission is unnecessarily lifted at this moment when new cases are rapidly increasing due to the highly contagious Delta variant, the CDC wrote in its filing. Now, as reported by Samantha Hawkins in the courthouse news service today, again, today being Friday, August the 6th, she says, the agency said that its new moratorium, which only last through October 3rd is necessary to keep people from losing their homes amidst a surge in infection. But the landlords say, the realtors, the plaintiffs in the lawsuit, say the moratorium is crushing their livelihood and having been fighting the order ever since it was enacted by former President Donald Trump last September. So, Here's the rub. Congress and our current president have authorized some 47 billion, that's billion with a B, in relief to go to and through tenants to their landlords to pay the tenants catch up on their past due rents. And as reported by Will Parker in his August 4th, 2021 article in the Wall Street Journal entitled, log jams are keeping much of the $47 billion in federal aid from renters. Strict rules for eligibility and overburdened local officials prevent financial assistance from getting to struggling tenants. Now, he goes on to say, he being the author, he being Mr. Parker, Many many renters who missed rent payments during the pandemic are unable to access billions of dollars in federal aid that started flowing to states and cities five months ago. Local governments across the U.S. have struggled with how to distribute the money, and some have complained that their staffs are being deluged by a flood of aid requests. Now, numerous renters are being disqualified for failing to correctly complete the applications, local officials say. However, about 11 million tenants are considered at risk of eviction due to financial hardships, according to government figures. While the United States Treasury Department oversees the rent aid, local officials share responsibility for distributing the money. They have some leeway in deciding how to distribute it and the tenants, that is to say what the tenants must do to qualify. Now, Treasury last month recommended a series of changes to expedite payment and to break up the log jam. Those included loosening the documentation requirements for renters, as well as allowing the aid to be paid directly to the renters instead of the landlords. But research by and from the National Low Income Housing Coalition, a Washington based tenant advocacy group, shows that many local governments have been slow to act. So, my dear listeners, I offer you this for your consideration. Perhaps those of you who want to see our 11 million neighbors who are facing eviction stay in their home and not be kicked to the curb in the middle of a pandemic with a surging new variant of the virus. Perhaps we all should cast our gaze away from Washington, D.C., and cast our gaze towards our state and local governmental officials and units who are charged with distributing this money and make sure they understand the urgency. Kind of like what the Texas state delegation did in reverse. They went to Washington to get the Voting Rights Act passed because they weren't... Successful in Texas. Maybe those of us, those of you out there who have been putting a lot of pressure on Washington, DC and our current administration, who, in my opinion, if they cut the check for 47 billion and the problem is the logjam in the local community, perhaps we, you need to go from Washington To your local governors and your mayors and whoever else is running the show about distributing the money because it's there. And maybe you need to apply some pressure to them to get the money to our neighbors who are facing eviction. Anyway, that's just food for thought. Now, when we come back, I want to share with you a letter I received this morning. But first, We'll take a short break and I'll see you on the other side.
0: Now back to Selwyn's Law. Once again, your host, Selwyn Whitehead.
1: Welcome back to Selwyn's Law. You know, on the other side, I told you that um, I wanted to share a letter with you or part of it anyway. You know, I receive a lot of correspondence from politicians, and during election season, I'm sure you do as well. And while I try to get the gist of whatever it is that the politician is trying to say, I rather quickly blow the letters off into my waste bin or my trash can on my desktop if they send me an email. However, this morning, I got an email from somebody named Beta O'Rourke, reminding me of something that happened 56 years ago when I was but 10 years old, that so moved my grandmother, my mother's mother, that she kept a newspaper clipping thumb packed to her pantry door for the rest of her life. It was a picture of Lyndon Baines Johnson reaching down with a great big smile on his face as he shook the hand of a little black child. My granny had saved that picture to commemorate President Johnson signing the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, if you're a black person who spent any time with your grandparents down South in the 60s or 70s, You know that many, if not most, including my dad's mother, had pictures of three men on the walls of their living room. First, a picture of Jesus Christ, who was blonde and blue-eyed, a picture of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and a picture of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Now, I'm going to save my discussion with my grandma about the fact that because Jesus Christ was a Jew, he probably was neither blonde nor blue-eyed. But again, that's a topic for another day. However, my mother's mother was even more of an independent than I am, if you can believe that. And she believed that more Blacks should give credit to President Johnson because in her words, although he was a Southern blank, I won't use the word, he bullied Congress and his fellow Southern blanks to pass not only the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but also the Voters' Rights Act of 1965. So when I started reading Beta's email, Big Toe's email this morning. I was compelled to finish it and share some of it with you right now. The email starts, Dear Selwyn, on this day 56 years ago, President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the 1965 Voting Rights Act into law, expanding the right to vote to tens of millions of disenfranchised Americans and setting our country on a path towards establishing the first truly multiracial democracy. That momentous win for democracy and voting rights happened because people protested, sacrificed, and put their lives on the line to engage the consciousness of the nation. And because President Johnson was willing to use the full force of his office to pass federal voting rights legislation. Today, we face a weakened Voting Rights Act. And as state legislatures across the country erect new barriers to the ballot box, it's going to take another historic movement and strong leadership from President Biden to pass new federal voting rights legislation and save our democracy before it's too late. I have shared below an op-ed I offered for CNN that expresses my hope that President Biden will rise to the occasion and pass the For the People Act and why I believe Texas will be the central to fight to save our democracy. It goes on to say, you can find the op-ed here And I hope you'll take a few minutes to read it. And he signed it off as Beto. It states, there have been three critical moments where Texas has proved decisive for democracy and voting rights in this country. The first two in 1890 and 1965 afford us key insights how we can make the most of the third one taking place right now. After reconstructions, states throughout the South were rife with white supremacist terrorism, racial injustice and attacks on black voting rights. And by the 19th century, Texas was among the most brutal. Whites only democratic clubs and their armed militias purified in quotation marks, the ballot box in one Texas county after another. Political violence, assassinations and lynchings enforced white rule throughout much of the state as the expense of black lives, at the expense of black lives and black voting rights. In Washington County, in the Washington County election of 1886, for example, ballot boxes in black precincts were stolen at gunpoint. by agents of the whites only political ring known as the People's Party. When black poll workers dared to fight back at one of the precincts, they were arrested and three of them, Shad Fiedler, Alfred Jones, and Stuart Jones were lynched by the mob and no one ever was brought to justice. The national outrage this produced compelled Congress to hold hearings on the troubled voting practices that plagued Texas and much of the South. The resulting federal election bill of 1890 promised greater federal intervention to protect the right to vote in any state where it was threatened. Now, like The Democratic Party of today, the Republican Party of 1890, had recently won majorities in the U.S. House and Senate. And with the election of Benjamin Harrison in 1888, controlled the presidency, too. And like today's Democratic Party, the Republicans publicly resolved to use the power to secure voting rights, especially for the black targets of the voter suppression efforts in the South. Now, the federal election bill duly passed the House of Representatives that year, and debate on its passing soon began in the Senate. But unfortunately for the bill and millions of Black Americans, the Senate Republicans were unable or perhaps unwilling to overcome a filibuster threat by the Democrats. It didn't happen It didn't help that Harrison who had campaigned on a platform of restoring voters' rights remained on the sideline for much of the action. So after all the righteous indignation over the election outrage in Texas had been spent, the majority party meekly gave up the fight for voting rights. They blinked in the face of the filibuster and denied America the chance to establish a true multiracial democracy. In the aftermath, state legislatures throughout the former confeder- Confederacy imposed whites only primary laws and additional forms of Jim Crow voter suppression, including poll taxes, literacy tests, and extraordinary residency requirements all of which whites could bypass thanks to the grandfather clause that exempted those whose grandfathers had been registered voters. Now, it took 75 years, uh, a relentless voting rights movement, and the first president from Texas to provide another opportunity to reestablish the right to vote in the South. Soon after Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, civil rights leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. pressed President Lyndon Baines Johnson to work on an accompanying voter rights bill. After Johnson told the activists that he didn't have the power to move Congress, King resolved to get the president some power in quotes. Over the following months, civil rights and voting rights leaders brought the issue to the forefront of the national conversation. Through protests and marches, direct action, extraordinary courage, they successfully engaged the consciousness of the country. And when John Lewis, the late great John Lewis, was beaten within an inch of his life leading a march from Selma to Montgomery on March 7, 1965, Johnson finally had the power he needed. Beto goes on to say, just eight days after Bloody Sunday, President convened the president convened a joint session of Congress and told the assembly members that no other issue was as important as securing the country's democracy. In quotes, Should we defeat every enemy, should we double our wealth and conquer the stars and still be unequal to the issue, he said, then we will have failed as a people and as a nation. As far as Johnson was concerned, no short term political interest could compromise the intensity of this fight for the most important of American rights. By using the full power of the presidency, he helped move Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act on August 5, 1965, and it was signed into law the next day, August 6, 1965, 56 years ago, when I was 10. These are just a few excerpts from uh, Beto's op-ed. I urge you to read the rest. But you know, we're gonna leave it there for now, but as always in closing, I like to say here at Sellins Law, we always wanna be on the right side of the law, including laws dealing with our ability to stay in our homes during a pandemic, and just as importantly, the ability to exercise our franchise. But in the meantime, please, Get vaccinated until we have herd immunity. Also, keep your social distance in the wake of this Delta variant and mask up and please wash your hands. Stay safe and I'll see you next time. Bye for now.